Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. It's a warm welcome to First Move this Wednesday. Great to have you with us as always. Investors enjoyed a sunny market mood Tuesday, the first day of summer. The second day, well, not such an up-and-comer. Take a look at this. Rapidly moving from sunshine to storm clouds on Wall Street. Futures pointing to losses of around 1.5%, if not more. It's just volatile. Europe has an inclement bent as well. I'll give you a look at that. All this after the best gains for U.S. stocks in almost a month yesterday, with energy firms providing much of the stock market fuel. Today, the oil patch also not at scratch. Brent and U.S. crude tumbling some 5% plus right now. Investors fearing once again, I think, that global rate hikes will slow economies and weaken demand. Citigroup saying the chance of a global recession is now close to 50. That's 5-0%. Then you can throw in new U.K. consumer inflation numbers. Prices rose at a steamy 9.1% year on year in May. That's well above levels seen in the United States. Discouraging data, I think, for all inflation-fighting central bankers. But don't expect Fed Chair Jay Powell to throw in the tightening towel today as he begins two-day testimony before Congress. And you can add to that, we'll hear from President Biden today on his proposed gas tax holiday. It might ease the burden on consumers for a short while, but risks making the Fed's job harder if it ends up raising fuel demand. Lots to discuss. Rahel Solomon joins us now. Rahel, let's talk about power because he's got a very fine line, I think, to walk today. He's got to hold the line on being tough on inflation, but he doesn't want to spook on higher risks of recession. Difficult balance. It's a very delicate balance for Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell, yes. And it could be a cruel summer for consumers, Julia, if prices, certainly at the pump, but really across the board, don't start to ease. Inflation is going to be the topic of discussion today when Chairman Powell speaks before the Senate Banking Committee. We expect him to be grilled on not just inflation, one, how we got here, but also how do we get out of this mess, but two, the probability of avoiding a recession, the probability of pulling off a soft landing. Some say... Arguably, it's only happened one time in 1994. As you pointed out, City now putting its probability at about 50 percent of hitting a recession. And also decision from the FOMC and the Federal Reserve last week to raise interest rates by three quarters of a percent. That was the highest hike in a single meeting since 1994. So lots to discuss when the chairman speaks before the Senate Banking Committee in about 30 minutes. And also lots of blame to go around, Julia, as you know. Some have pointed the finger at the White House. Others, like economist Mohamed Alarian, who I know you speak to quite a bit and spoke to yesterday on the show, have pointed the finger squarely at the Fed. It's going to be an interesting meeting in about 30 minutes. And Congress did a lot of spending in the run up to this, too. And to your exact point, I think it's why we're going to get the president out today, President Biden, talking about the possibility of a proposed three month moratorium on a fuel levy that there is in the United States. The problem is, Rahul, you can tell me um, perhaps more easily than, than I can guess the probability of Congress even passing this, even debating this, because I'm struggling to find anyone who's in favor other than the president. 
Well, it's a great point. In fact, I just got off the phone with an oil industry consultant who said, uh, when I asked about this, does this even get through Congress? He said at this point in this high inflationary environment that we're in, he actually said that he can't see Congress not passing this sort of measure. So let's go through what it looks like. So it would be an 18.4 cent a gallon suspension for gasoline and about 24 cents for diesel for three months, as you pointed out. Uh, The president also expected to encourage states to do the same. But yes, the congressional challenges uh, are are stiff. I mean, folks within the president's own party have criticized this. President Barack Obama in the past has called it a gimmick. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has said it's showbiz. Larry Summers uh, also saying that it's not a good idea. And of course, the concern is that it doesn't really get to the root of the problem in oil prices, right? There is much more demand than there is supply. But it does, however, allow the White House to say, look, we did something. We, we tried to do something. They can point the finger at Congress if they don't pass it. But it also buys them some time, Julia, to maybe get at the root cause, perhaps get some more oil supply uh, on the market. So it, it, it gives them sort of a breather. But there are lots of criticisms about this idea. But it is certainly a tough time for the White House and they are in search of solutions. We'll see if this is one of them. Yes. PR 100 percent probability zero. I said it. We'll see. We will <laughs> Solomon. See. Thank you for that. Okay, UK inflation hits 9.1% in May. That's the highest in 40 years and the highest in the G7 at this moment. The government says it has tools to tackle soaring prices. Forecasters will make their predictions, you know, but I am confident that we're providing the right support to the economy at this time to help people ease through some of the challenges they're facing with a rising cost of living and rebuild a stronger economy for the long term. And Claire Sebastian joins us now. There's a follow through from that previous conversation, of course, because the UK government have gone for a windfall tax on some of these energy companies. But when you look at this inflation print, it's eye watering and it's not the peak, Claire. They're predicting higher later on this year. Yeah, this is the highest that we've seen in 40 years already, Julia. And the Bank of England expects that it will stay above 9% throughout the summer and could peak at 11% in October, Julia. The central piece of that forecast is energy costs. This latest inflation report showed that motor fuel, for example, rose almost 33% in the last 12 months. That was the highest uh, in, since, since record keeping of that data uh, began. So that is not just affecting consumers, that is an input cost for businesses. We're here at this East London market. It's actually at the end of lunch break, but there certainly were quite big crowds here. People are still out, are still buying things, but people we ask are feeling the pressure in all sorts of different ways. Take a listen. I think food shops especially are just like ridiculous. You can't get anything on offer. Just it's all yeah, adds up too much. But yeah, unfortunately, money doesn't go so far. I have also been busy trying to fix my mortgage because we are facing significantly rising mortgage rates as well. The oil's gone up. The vegetable oil and the price of the chicken's gone up basically. But we've not passed it on yet because uh, try and keep it till the absolute minimum till we can. So that uh, paella stall there, Julian, not passing on the costs uh, to their customers yet. Other businesses, we, cause, we of course, know are. And the fear is that you have this situation in the UK where uh, inflation is rising. The Bank of England is, is trying to act to bring it down. We've had five rate rises so far. That, as you heard there, is hitting people's mortgage rates. And at the same time, uh, you know, GDP readings for March and April showed a contraction. So this is raising concerns that it could tip the economy into a recession. And the other big concern that we've heard here at this market coming off the rail strikes that we've heard this week is that kind of disruption could intensify as inflation rises and wages just don't keep up.
Yeah, significant backlash already beginning. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that report there. Now, China's President Xi criticised the West sanctions on Russia as a double-edged sword that weaponizes the world economy. Quote, he was speaking at the opening of the BRICS Business Forum in Beijing. President Putin is due to attend the virtual summit, his first major appearance on the world stage since he launched the invasion of Ukraine. Selena Wang joins me now. Interesting that this is what uh, President Xi chose to speak about on the first day of this summit, of course, facing their own sanctions with regard to the United States, and there's talks that perhaps those will be removed at some point soon, but honing in on a bunch of countries that may have misaligned different ambitions and ideologies, but equally, I think, together in their neutral stance on this war. Yeah, Julia, we heard Xi Jinping basically hammer home this relentless criticism from China of Western sanctions, arguing that they don't actually solve the problem, they worsen the global economic system. This is exactly what he said at this keynote speech. Xi Jinping said, quote, facts have proven time again that sanctions are a boomerang and a double-edged sword, politicizing, instrumentalizing, and weaponizing the world economy, adding that sanctions take advantage of the international financial system to bring harm to the people of the world. Now, Julia, China has claimed that it's not taking sides in the conflict, but it has not called it an invasion. And China, along with the other BRICS nations, they have not outright condemned Russia. But still, Putin's invasion of Ukraine does complicate the relationship of these BRICS nations with, as you say, they have already long struggled to find alignment amid varying ideologies and oftentimes conflicting geopolitical interests. But what this does show to have Putin virtually on screen alongside the other major economies at this virtual event, what it does show the world is that Putin is not completely alone, that he is not a pariah state to every country. And BRICS has long tried to present itself as this sort of alternative to the G7. China, along with the BRICS nations, they have tried to push against what they see as disproportionate powers of these Western capitalist democracy nations. And China has even called the BRICS summit a force against, quote, the evil interests aligning of these Western nations forming cliques around the G7. And important to note here that these BRICS countries, they do comprise more than 40% of the global population. They do comprise about a quarter of the world's GDP. Along at the summit, we're also expected to hear discussion about potentially how these countries can find ways to trade in their own currencies, which has become more important as a system that's outside of the U.S. dollar system, as we've seen more of these sanctions on Russia. This is becoming of even more pertinence to these BRICS nations. Now, Russia is now China's largest supplier of oil, and Russia is also a key supplier of defense equipment to India. So that is of crucial importance to them. And symbolic, of course, as well as that in just a few days' time, we're going to have leaders convening at the G7, and they have been united in their strong language against Russia and actions as well. Julia. Brilliant summary. It's going to be a fascinating couple of days. And we'll see how uh, President Putin utilizes this platform when we hear from him too. Selena, great job. Thank you. Selena Wang there. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A powerful earthquake struck eastern Afghanistan, killing at least 1,000 people and injuring hundreds more. It happened near the city of Kos, close to the border with Pakistan. The Taliban government called on aid agencies to send relief teams to the area. 
CNN's Vedika Sood joins us now from New Delhi with the latest. Vedika, good to have you with us. The problem is a lot of these international aid agencies left once the Taliban took over. Who's there to help and what can you tell us in terms of the latest recovery and support efforts? That's a very important question you asked there, Julia. But let me first get you up to speed with what's really happening on the ground in the eastern region of Afghanistan, where a very powerful and devastating earthquake has already claimed over 1,000 lives and injured over 1,500 people. We're talking about the eastern region of the country. Now, at about 1.24 a.m. local time in Afghanistan, this quake hit the region. Most of the people were in their homes in bed. We're talking about two areas that have been severely impacted one of them being Paktika and the other being Khost. Now, both these regions are near the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. Now, this region, Julia, is mostly a remote village area where homes are made of mud. Now, the Indian monsoon has already had a huge impact on these mud homes. And when that quake struck, it just made it worse. And you saw a lot of rubble and devastated homes soon after. Now, what we also do know about this region is that that, uh, according to officials, the depth of this earthquake was about 10 kilometers, which made the, the casualty figure really go up. Now, about eight hours ago, when we were reporting on this, Julia, the figure stood at about 280. Eight hours later, it's already over 1,000. And according to officials, that death toll will only go up and rise further. We know about the conflict that this region has seen over the last few decades. We know that they have very poor infrastructure and that's why when you talk about uh, agencies coming to help them and like you said most of them left the area after the takeover. Very few in this area can actually get to this remote location, but they're trying their level best. Now, we also do know that Afghanistan is going through one of its worst humanitarian and economic crises. Recently, according to the World Food Program, almost half the population of Afghanistan are in search and need of food. So this situation is going to unravel. This quake information that we're getting details will be unraveling over the next few days, perhaps weeks. We don't know the extent of damage yet. Like I said, this is a remote area in a mountain region. So we're just hoping that this death toll really doesn't cross more than a thousand. And if it does, if it crosses more than about 1,150, it will be the worst earthquake that Afghanistan has seen in the last two decades. Julia. Our prayers to uh, all those involved in helping uh, provide attention and support to Vedika. Thank you for that. Vedika Sood there. Now, Ukraine acknowledges that it's losing territory around a key city in the eastern Donbass region. One local official says Russia now fully controls two towns near Lyshank, south of Severodonetsk. Kiev also reporting heavy fighting in the south of the country, too. An investigation is underway after a passenger jet crash landed at Miami International Airport. It happened when the plane's landing gear collapsed after touchdown. 140 people were on board. Three of them were hospitalized with minor injuries. The flight was coming from the Dominican Republic. Straight ahead here on First Move, a $4 billion bet on Bitcoin. How did that go for MicroStrategy? We're laser focused on the CEO and... Who'd want to do this? Negotiating trade deals amid fraying relations, a supply chain crisis and Russia's war in Ukraine. The Director General of the World Trade Organization on what's been agreed and what hasn't. Up next.
Welcome back to First Move. In a world of slowing growth, rising inflation, war in Europe, 164 nations accounting for 68, sorry, 98% of global trade have agreed a series of landmark deals, including a limit on overfishing and the sharing of COVID vaccine knowledge. The World Trade Organization's Director General called it an unprecedented deal. Some critics call it underwhelming given the degree of compromise required to get everyone to agree. Listen in. This will impact lives. And I totally disagree with those who say it's uh, underwhelming. Let me tell you why. First of all, it's just this whole thing about what it means for multilateralism. We had Russia, Ukraine, the US, China, all those uh, countries that are normally involved in global tensions, all of them members of the WTO, uh, they, they were all party to, to signing these agreements. And I think that what we've done here demonstrates that multilateralism is alive and multilateralism is good for solving problems. So that's the first point. Let me now touch on the agreements themselves. The first one I want to talk about is the TRIPS waiver, what is known as the waiver of intellectual property for access to patents for vaccines. Now, this has been at the WTO uh, being argued for almost two years with no results. And we finally managed to get a compromise agreement, which enables developing countries to be able to access patents for a period of time uh, so that they can manufacture vaccines. This dis decentralizes and diversifies manufacturing and helps to solve the problem of inequity of access to vaccines. So this, this will touch lives, and that is nothing uh, 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 trivial or small about it. Now, the compromise you can see that it's being criticized by civil society that it's not enough because yes. they wanted a 100% waiver uh, of vac for vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics. It's being criticized by the pharmaceutical industry as being too much. So, Julie, I think we found the right sort of compromise between the two parties. So that's the first one. Can I, I just ask on that to... point? Can I just ask on that yes. point? And then and you can come on to your second one. I, the quote that caught me was Doctors Without Borders. And I know you're quite right. You're criticised on either side. Um, but they called it a devastating global failure for, for people's health worldwide that you didn't manage to incorporate treatments and testing for, for COVID too. And that decision was postponed for six months. Do you think you can get an agreement if you come back to this in six months time? Because I don't want to be glass half, glass half full, but it would be a critical further element to tackling this pandemic if you could achieve that. Well, I would, I would hope, uh, we'll, we'll certainly give it a try, Julia. Um, but um, I think we need to acknowledge what we've been able to do. Mm. It is better to start this way and then see how we can get to therapeutics and diagnostics than be locked up for years arguing the issue. You know, in the TRIPS Council, the Intellectual Property Council here, members were just talking past each other with no results while, whilst people were losing their lives. So I'm very happy that we're able to find a compromise for vaccines. And I hope that six months down the line, will be able to do it for therapeutics and diagnostics. It's not going to be easy, obviously, because the pharmaceutical industry and, and, and the medical supplies and industry um, and medical treatments, we are going to have the same sort of pushback. But I think that um, members haven't done it once. I hope, I'm very hopeful that they'll see through this and be able to do it again. 
as you point out, some action is better than no action. And on this, that's vital. One of the other issues, and I think you were going to uh, allude to it, and I I rudely interrupted you, was the food security crisis. And I know you've warned about the risk of of hunger, of pushing people into famine, of, of social issues, potentially of riots too. Are you confident that the World Food Programme now that was raising the flag and saying, look, we can't get access to what we need. Are you, are you confident now that they'll be able to access what's required and that you've managed to, as a result of these agreements, prevent further barriers and export restrictions rising, which we know in the past has significantly contributed to the pain of higher prices for, for individuals? Yes, Julia, um, I'm very happy about the World Food Programme the lifting of uh, export restrictions so that they can access food in any of our members uh, for humanitarian supplies. Of course, the World Food Programme needs two things. It needs money uh, to be able to buy the food, and it needs free trade and free-flowing access to food supplies where where members or countries have surplus. So by agreeing to, to not have these export restrictions on humanitarian supplies, the World Food Programme can freely access food in in those countries so that they can buy and take to others where where people are dying of hunger. I think that's a major uh, achievement. And I think the second aspect is that there was a food security declaration where members also pledged to do their best to make sure that there's free trade in food, that they do not put these export restrictions or where they have them, that they're really temporary and, and uh, they are done transparently. So they don't result in uh, spikes in prices, as we've seen on the international markets for wheat, uh, for, for uh, rice, for uh, vegetable oils, and other, other types of uh, vital food supplies. Um, we, this is important because, as, as you were saying, Julia, so many people uh, depend on food imports from around the world. There are many food import dependent countries. You know, 35 countries in Africa import food from the Black Sea region alone. And uh, 22 import fertilizers. So having access to these is critical uh, in order to help stave off uh, hunger. And and I I can't end this without saying that we also agreed a modality for going forward on reforming the WTO. We wanted to make sure that this during this MC12, this meeting, we would agree a process for reforming the organization so it can be modernized and be fit for purpose for the 21st century. And we agreed that. So when you look at all of these, that's why I tell you that no one expected this package of agreements. I thought, I had said right at the beginning that if we got one or two of these, this would be success. Because if you look at the past meetings of the WTO, they've not had much success. Mm. So yes, this is a this is a significant package. There are big nations that circumvent the rules. I mean, the United States itself handicapped the appeals system. Is it credible to say all of these countries are buying into reform when some of the biggest nations are at times the worst offenders? Well, um, I mean, nations are offenders at one time or the other. Uh, we have to admit that. But. Yes. What is very important at the WTO is our monitoring function and our transparency function. And and so we monitor uh, what all the nations do. And so when they are contravening WTO rules, it's very easy to to see that and to put the spotlight on them. 
And tied to this, there is rumours that the United States is going to remove some of the barriers that were added under the previous administration on trade with China. What difference will that make at a time of, of global growth slowdown in your mind? Well, um, you know, from the vantage point of the WTO, what we prefer to see as few barriers as possible to trade between nations. So removing that, number one, it will be very much in tune with the WTO rules. Two, it will send a very strong signal that in spite of these geopolitical tensions, two very important countries who are members of, uh, of our organization uh, are able to um, you know, talk to each other, sort out their differences and remove whatever barriers are in the way. And thirdly, it's very good for the multilateral trading system to see this, uh, um, to see this done. So I do hope it will happen. And final question, and I know it's a tough one. I believe you need 75% of members, and it's complicated, to, to remove a nation from the WTO. But I just want to ask you in light of some of the challenges and then the walkouts and the difficulty that you had at times, and you mentioned Russia being part of this negotiation. Was it morally right to have Russia involved in these discussions at this moment in time? Well, uh, Julia, yes, it's a very tough question. And we've had very difficult times uh, here. As you said, there have been times when members walked out uh, because they didn't want to engage with or talk to Russia. We had to find different ways of negotiating because some members would not negotiate with Russia. And we had to devise a negotiation in small groups and then try to bring all the results together. Normally, we negotiate in everyone in the room with the, with the agreement up and, and different members will say what it is they, they want or don't want. But this time we had to break up in small groups. So it's been difficult. The tension has not been easy, but we managed it. Now, let me say this, that there has to be a way of also being able to talk to Russia. It's still a member of the WTO. Uh, so it had a right to, to be here at the meetings. Uh, we need to be able to reach them and talk to them. If we're ever going to have peace, you cannot make peace by isolating a member. So uh, the war in Ukraine is very, very tough. And for me, as a person, it's very difficult to watch uh, what happens because of the war I went through when I was a teenager from 12 to 15, the Nigeria-Biafra war. We were running, my family was running from place to place. So the images are very tough. And uh, our hearts and minds and sympathies with Ukraine. But at the same time, I believe that there has to be a way to, to engage with Russia. Uh, so that's, that's the way I see it. And multilateralism is the key. Thanks so much there to Ngozi Okonjo Iwela, the Director General of the World Trade Organization. Okay, so to come, bullish on Bitcoin. Will a big bet ultimately pay off? For MicroStrategy, the CEO joins us next. Welcome back to First Move. Fed Chair Jane Powell set to begin providing testimony on Capitol Hill at this hour. Powell appearing today before the Senate Banking Committee. And in the meantime, markets a bit wary, I think, of the Powell inflation prognosis and the need for aggressive monetary medicine. All the major averages are down by around 1% in early trade on renewed recession concerns. That is off the lows, though. A reversal, however, of Tuesday's gains. 
riskier assets like cryptocurrency is extremely sensitive to Fed rate hikes too, it seems. Bitcoin down some 2% today, still above that sensitive $20,000 per Bitcoin level, but down more than 50% year to date, underperforming over this time period, at least the major global stock markets. And there's the comparison performance there. Now, one key investor and proponent of Bitcoin is Michael Saylor, who turned his software business microstrategy into one of the world's largest public holders of Bitcoin. At the end of March, the company had over 129,000 Bitcoin valued at nearly $3 billion. Saylor has bet big, borrowing millions from crypto bank Silvergate to buy more, but recent declines have raised questions over whether it is Bitcoin or bust. Michael Saylor, CEO of MicroStrategy, joins us now. Michael, great to have you on the show. Let's just rule that out to begin. Can we say no matter what the level of Bitcoin, there will be no bust? We're in here for the long term. Uh, Bitcoin is going to outlast all of us. I'm quite sure of that. And what about uh, sitting on paper losses of what $1 billion in the Bitcoin portfolio? Can I just confirm you've not sold any? So it is paper losses. It's not been crystallized. No, no, we're not a Satoshi. Uh, we're committed for the long term. I think you got to step back and look at the big picture. Um, the S&P has got the worst start since 1970. So we're witnessing the birth of a new industry during the worst financial crisis of 50 years. If you roll the clock back to 1900, there were 3,000 car companies. When Spindletop was discovered in Beaumont, Texas in 1901, 1,500 oil companies were launched in a single year. Uh, you know, lots of them went bust, 99%, but the rest is history. Um, we've, got, we've got cars, oil business is a huge business, it changed the future of the world. And if you look back 100 years, no one's going to remember who made money or losing money building New York City. And I, I think that people that understand Bitcoin understand that this is the same thing. This is a totally new industry. I mean, there's many comments I could make there. I guess the, the great financial crisis could be argued to be the, the biggest financial crisis that we've seen over the last 50 years. But I think the bigger point here is that this is going to hang around for longer. What you said is that people understand that. But the problem is many people don't. And if you look at some of the events that we've seen over the past month, it plays into all the stereotypes of, of this being the Wild West, deeply unregulated, over leveraged. Can you sympathize with those that look at this and say, I never understood it. It's obviously going to zero and it's completely corrupt. And this proves it. The bubble popped. Okay. well, from first principles, Bitcoin is digital energy. It's incorruptible, indestructible, programmable. It lasts forever. And, uh, you know, the average person has to sift through thousands of stocks, thousands of coins, thousands of investment properties. All of these have risk. There's a lot of confusion. But one thing we're not confused about is that Bitcoin's 100 times bigger than the next digital energy network. It's the dominant one. And, uh, you know, if, you, if you're looking at it as an investor, well, you know, what is your choice? You can't dollar cost average into commercial real estate. You can't stockpile oil for the next decade. Bitcoin, on the other hand, is something that you can accumulate monthly. You can keep it for your entire life. And so it's fundamentally different than anything that's come before it. Michael, I, I understand everything you're saying. And I think the big sigh ahead of you saying that said everything about the questions that, that I'm asking. Um, but again, I'd go back to the people that, that have never invested in this. And that's the vast majority of, of investors out there still. And they look at this and say, just because Bitcoin as an example is way bigger than the other, what, 19,000 digital currencies or tokens out there, doesn't make it a good investment prospect. So I guess I ask the same question and you have to give me a different answer. And I apologize for that. 
Um, does Bitcoin go back up and does it take regulation of all kinds to, to get us there, to rule out some of the obvious criticisms that have been, been pushed over the last two months? Yeah, I, I think it's it's clear that people are confused and regulation will be constructive because clarity will help the market mature. Uh, the people are confused about what's a currency, what's a commodity, what's a security, what are tokens. There's 19,000 cryptos out there. I think we can see in the crypto crash that, that the average investor has been taken advantage of by traders and by wildcat crypto banks. And uh, as the regulators come in and they clear up this confusion and they introduce uh, rules of the road, it's going to be good for mainstream investors. It's going to be good for corporations. It'll be, it, it will catapult the industry from the entrepreneurial offshore anything goes stage into, into an institutional mature asset class. You know, you said something really important there, I think, which is a lot of people got taken advantage of got taken advantage of through this period. Is the argument then to be made that until this regulation, this should be for sophisticated, and I hate the word, but I'll use it, sophisticated investors only. Actually, retail participation here is, is too high risk. Well, I think the challenge is, is um, if you wait for a decade for everything to be cleared up, uh, the price of uh, Bitcoin is going to be 10 or 100x more than it is right now. So you have to choose whether or not you want to enter knowing that there are about a dozen things that are going to mature the asset class and make it more transparent, or whether you want to wait for all those things to take place and then pay a much higher price when it does. And everyone has to decide uh, where they're going to land there. But Julia, let me make one big point. The flight to safety is a grand illusion. It, you don't have the choice to do nothing and, and comfortably move forward. For example, the true inflation rate in all of our currencies runs 7% in the best years, 14% in bad years, and 20% or more in a crisis. The yen has strengthened, uh, sorry, has weakened against the dollar 19%, the great British pound 12%, and the euro 10% just year to date. So if you put all your money in a currency bank account and then you had to go buy oil, which is up 33 percent or wheat, which is up 32 percent, what you found is the safe risk free strategy is resulting in you paying 50 percent more in local currency for the things you have to eat and you have to use in order to keep from freezing to death. So there's no safe haven. But I would argue, Michael, in this situation, Bitcoin certainly wasn't a safe haven this year either. You could make a bigger point about see, investing over a period of years, but on that compar comparative basis, Bitcoin's had a shocker too. Yeah, if you're looking for something in the next three months, clearly you have to sit in currency, but you're losing 20, 30, 40% of your value sitting in the currency. Bitcoin's gone through three boom and buff cycles in the last two years. But if you zoom out, uh, look at the, at the five-year picture, Bitcoin's up 50% a year in the last five years. 50% a year for the past two years, 120% a year in the past 10 years. That's 10x better than NASDAQ. That's five to 10x better than pretty much any other option. So if you're, if you're wanting uh, peace and calm in the near term, uh, there is no safe haven. The long bond is down 23% year over year. So what you have to do is decide, are you gonna stay on a sinking ship or are you going to get on a lifeboat and be tossed about on the stormy seas? 
And Bitcoin represents that lifeboat and its hope for everybody in the world if you can take the long view and focus on the fundamentals. Yeah, I mean, you raise a great point about uh, capital preservation, never mind capital return in, in this kind of um, economic environment and, and financial market environment too. I, I want to hone in on, on MicroStrategy itself. I mentioned at the beginning in the introduction that you borrowed money in order to invest in, in Bitcoin and there's been all sorts of questions over margin calls and the commitment of the lenders. Can I just ask whether they've put any constraints on, on the use of the money that you have? There's no risk of them calling in the loan early. And um, just in general, how do your shareholders feel about your, your ongoing commitment to this? Because it was a huge shift for the business. It remains that case and you're, and you're, you're sort of doubling down by saying we're sticking with it. So, Julia, if the, if the currency collapses by 90% over the course of a decade, then the smartest thing you can do is have debt on your balance sheet. So what MicroStrategy did is borrow $2.2 billion at a blended interest rate of 1.8%. The junk money. bond yield rate is 8.5% <laughs> right now. So, and the inflation rate is running 8% CPI, but probably 15% or more if you look at other assets and 30% against commodities. So we took a debt position paying effectively one to 2% interest on long-term debt. Most of it, in fact, none of that debt I mentioned is, uh, is collateralized by Bitcoin. It's not marked to market debt. We have a very thin layer, like 200 million against a multi-billion dollar balance sheet, which we have to collateralize and we're 10X over collateralized. Right. So our balance sheet is, is great. Our position is, when the inflation rate is running dramatically higher than the interest rate, you're better off to be a debtor than to be a creditor. And that's cheap debt in this environment too. Very quickly, yes or no, have you bought more in recent weeks? Uh, we, will, we will buy more over time. But not yet. We don't sell, <laughs> we just keep accumulating. And okay. we do it with our cash flow. So as we generate Michael. more cash flows, we buy more Bitcoin. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy there. Thank you, sir. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Marketplace Europe is up next. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.